Courtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. Welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. This week, we are bringing you an episode from The Village Squarecast, the podcast from The Village Square in Tallahassee, Florida, and a partner of ours in the Democracy Group Podcast Network. The episode is a conversation between Manu Meal, Executive Director of Bridge USA, and Monica Guzman, a Senior Fellow for Public Practice at Braver Angels and author of the book, I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. So as you might guess, Manu and Monica's conversation centers around the idea of using curiosity as a way to transcend political divides and learn more about what unites us all as Americans. Uh, it's it's a really great conversation. Uh, I think Manu and Monica, they don't agree on everything, but it's evident that they practice what they preach. So if you enjoy what you hear today, I hope you will subscribe to the Village Squarecast. They do lots of programming in this vein, uh, both in Tallahassee, Florida and around the country. So we are going to jump right in here. You'll hear first from Manu Meal, who will introduce Monica Guzman. And so with that, I want to introduce our guest. So this is going to be the first and only time that I look down and read because our guest, Monica Guzman, has such an exemplary and amazing biography, and I want to make sure that we get every part of it. And then we're going to get into uh, conversation. So with that, I want to introduce Monica Guzman, who's a senior fellow for public practice at Braver Angels, the nation's largest cross-partisan grassroots organization working to depolarize America, and an amazingly close partner to Bridge USA. Uh, she's also the founder and CEO of Reclaim Curiosity and co-founder of the award-winning Seattle newsletter, The Evergrey. She was a 2019 fellow at the Henry M. Jackson Foundation and a 2016 fellow at the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University. She was named one of the 50 most influential women in Seattle and served twice as a juror for the Pulitzer Prizes, a prize that I would very much like to put my name in the running for. Um, a Mexican immigrant, Latina, and dual U.S.-Mexico citizen, she lives in Seattle with her husband and two kids and is the proud liberal daughter of conservative parents. And with that, let me welcome on my amazing friend uh, and dear uh, co-conspirator in this work and leader, Monica Guzman. Why write this book? at this moment in our in our in our in our politics and our democracy well i think we all i think a lot of people relate to the problem the polarization that's around us it's political polarization but it's personal it's in our workplace it's in our communities it's in our families it's the reason that many people are breaking relationships they don't know what else to do it's the reason to feel pretty desperate for a lot of people about the state of things in our country it's affecting so much uh, these, these ways that we think about how we communicate and what we're missing. For me, there were two threads that brought me to the book. The first is professional. I've been a journalist my whole career. And I'm a journalist because I take very seriously this idea that I want to help people understand each other. So I thought, okay, I'll write stories in, in the craft known as journalism. I'll do it as responsibly as I possibly can. And hopefully I'll put out some information that helps communities understand themselves and make better decisions. Cool. Hmm. But sometime in the last five to 10 years, that model kind of broke for me because I realized, wait a minute, just telling stories into this media landscape, into this fractured society, it I mean, the, the, the 
pieces that there's they're all shattered on the ground and they don't talk to each other. So how is this helping us understand each other? It's not, it's not enough. So I knew I had to duck out of that somehow and work on the underlying problem. And the second quick thread that I'll mention is the personal one, which is that this whole time <laughs> I've also been, as I say in my bio, and it's always uh, interesting to see the reaction when I'm in person, some people kind of give sort of nervous chuckles at the line, the proud liberal daughter of conservative parents. Uh, but it's very intentionally said, and I mean every word. We have had just incredible fights and arguments over the years because they are Republican, conservative. I'm liberal, Democrat. You know, we voted, they voted for Trump twice. I voted for the Democrat candidates. And my goodness, but somehow, despite all the heat, we have been able to have the kinds of conversations that help us understand each other. And the contrast, right, with 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 what's going on, how it feels hopeless and, and helpless uh, makes me want to say, hang on, I, I think there are ways through this and they're easier than we think. So let me take some time and put this down. And, and I promise I want to get deeper into the book, but I have to ask you first so that the audience can familiarize themselves with that personal part of the story that you identified. Um, mm -hmm. Where did you grow up? Where did your uh, parents raise you? What, what's a little bit of your personal background? Because I think that sometimes helps the audience relate. Yeah, so I was born in Monterrey, uh, Mexico, and um, I'm a dual, you know, U.S.-Mexico citizen now. Uh, but when I was in, what, like kindergarten, we moved to the States, and soon after that, went to New Hampshire. So I grew up mostly in New Hampshire. In the year 2000, that's when my parents finally got their citizenship uh, for the United States, which they were super excited about. There's this photograph I love of my mom's uh, naturalization ceremony, and she's holding a little flag, you know, a little American flag, and she's got red, white, and blue, and she's just beaming. And I'm 17, and I'm, you know, just hanging onto her shoulder. Um, and so we 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 picked this country. You know, this was a this was a selection kind of thing. And we also had the really interesting experience of voting kind of at the same time, right? Because I was just going to turn 18 and they were just starting to vote because they just became citizens. And so we sort of became political creatures all at once uh, across these two generations. And that was quite the experience. Why do you think curiosity, that specific skill, out of all the different skills that we can be advocating for and putting in the forefront of our minds, why curiosity? Yeah, uh, several reasons. I and mean, mostly it is so swift and effective and natural and universal. It is a cognitive unlocking of something. Um, it is, it's how we reach for the key and open a door. Uh, people call it the knowledge emotion, which I love because it is a kind of emotion. It's often accompanied by anxiety. If you have what's called um, deprivation-based curiosity, where it's like, I gotta know when when is the vaccine gonna be available? When are they gonna lift the mask mandates? It's an itch you can't scratch. And so you check your favorite news source over and over again for new information. Or you might have interest-based curiosity, which is more adventurous. And that one's like, somebody told you some random fact and two hours later, you're still on the internet discovering more about it. So the a, a very perceptive question, I think is the most powerful way to cross any divide mm -hmm. in an instant right? A perceptive question uh, in the right context in a conversation where you are connected and there's trust and goodwill. You can learn so much that you, outside of the context of the conversation, would have been unimaginable. So it's, it's about that. Curiosity is activated when we pay attention to the gap between what we know and what we don't know. And depending on how motivated we are, we, we could do a lot to fill in that gap for ourselves. And this is how we learn. And as long as we hold that door open, as long as we don't 
tell ourselves that we are already certain that we don't need to know anymore, those questions could keep coming and keep our minds open and keep us humble. And and you mentioned perceptive questions, and it's something that you touch upon in your book. How does one, what is a perceptive question? And and how do, how do we come up with those perceptive questions in sort of different social circumstances so that we can, you know, bridge that gap and get somewhere deeper? Yeah. So perceptive question means you are perceiving the other person. You are listening deeply. You are you are paying attention to them on various levels. So mm-hmm. it's what they say, but it's also how they're saying it. It's also, do they seem comfortable? It's, are is the volume turning up? Is that giving you some sense that what they're talking about has a lot of deep meaning to them? Are they repeating themselves over and over again? Are they bringing something up almost as a cue, a, a hint to drop, a little crumb that they want you to ask about, right? There's all these ways that we communicate with each other uh, that are pretty extraordinary. Um, And so, yeah, a perceptive question is one that is also looking to be curious about the person who's holding the idea, not just the idea. Uh, A lot of us think about disagreement and, and sort of the boundaries of that are the boundaries of the topic we're talking about. But this really blows wide open. The discovery of it blows wide open when we're curious about each other with each other. And the boundaries of the conversation extend far beyond, let's talk about immigration, let's talk about abortion. No, let's talk about you. Let's talk about me. Let's talk about the meaning we bring to these issues. That's what's going to make it human and powerful and able to get past a lot of the barriers that we put up. And you mentioned this a little bit before about the personal, that being one of those threads. And it's evident as you read your book that your relationship with your parents was pretty essential in how you think about some of this. If you were to ground this in 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 some tangible notions that a lot of us could also relate to in our families, like what were some of those challenges that you experienced, for example, with your parents? How did you overcome some of those challenges? And what lessons can you take from you overcoming those challenges to apply to, let's say, upcoming Thanksgiving dinners? Uh, how do you, how do you, how would you describe that process? Well, everybody's relationship is very different. So that is worth saying, because a lot of these strategies, they don't map on neatly to so many different contexts. And and that's really important. Everybody's relationship truly, truly is different. It's so much about how much trust is there. Um, Among the challenges, uh, I remember one in particular that really hurt (laughs) was sitting down with my mom um, ahead of the 2020 election and you know, me getting kind of excited because I can tell like, oh, we're about to go at it on something political. I forget what the topic was. We're like, here we go. Here we go. Right. And I'm getting ready. I'm getting like my rhetorical skills. Here we go. And then I see my mom and she's sitting on the other side of the table and she goes, and we haven't even started talking yet. And so I'm like, mom, what, what's going on? And she goes, I, why bother Monica? Like Mm -hmm. you're the journalist, you're the communicator, you know, you're, you're good at this. I, I don't know that I feel up to it today. And that made me so sad because I realized just because I might be a more experienced communicator doesn't make me any more eligible or or my view any more important or valid than my mother's, right? Um, I mean, we both have English as a second language, but I grew up sort of more educated in English than she did and and whatnot. So that just hurt me because I thought, man, that that is a barrier, isn't it? So I've thought about that, how how we can make sure that we are not engaging in asymmetrical warfare. Mm -hmm. I think people do this too when they come in with like 
all their articles, you know, like uh-huh. memorized statistics. Here we go. And it's like machine gun fire at the other side. I've got all my statistics ready. <laughs> yeah. and I'm ready to go. <laughs> you know, and if the other person didn't show up thinking we had to do homework, what you're having is a conversation that maybe they didn't consent to. Yep. And so there's this sort of unevenness in that. And then whoever feels like they're winning, it's not real. It's not genuine. You're not actually going for the meaning that both people bring. Um, you're sort of playing like a, who gets an A yeah. in this topic. And that's not, that doesn't, that's not inclusive. That doesn't yeah. welcome all perspectives. It doesn't welcome all people with all kinds of skills, whether they're good communicators or not, who cares? They're bringing meaning. So let's make sure that it can all be welcome. That's just one example. Yeah. Um, really quickly, because we live in such a politically charged time, could you define the word inclusive and, and what that means to Ooh. you? Ooh, I told you, I totally, we go, we go off script. <laughs> this is great. I've never been asked this and I'm so thrilled. Okay, I get to make this up uh, as I go along. For me, for me, inclusive means every human being is able to express what's in their heart, is able to put their meaning into a pool of shared meaning. And so that's about different races and that's about different genders and that's about different sexualities and it's about different viewpoints too. If if we put on, if we took our opinions and put them on and off like a hat, hmm. then maybe that wouldn't be part of inclusion to me. But that's not how opinions work, even though we often treat them that way on social media. Like I can talk somebody out of their opinion with a meme. Watch. <laughs> you know, like, nope, <laughs> that's not a thing, people. Um, opinions are they have these deep, 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 deep roots that we don't see, especially online, you know, where we're not even, it's a non-place that makes us into non-people, but they do, they have these deep roots. We, we often arrive at our opinions, you know, our, our thoughts and, and our convictions sort of are there and we go, oh man, this is how I feel. This is what I believe. And we might, you know, go and invite like a mix of other things to sharpen us and add some friction, but but it's, it's, it's like the example I use is with, with my husband. Um, I'm a diehard Trekkie and he's a diehard Star Wars fan. And there is no, there is nothing Don't I worry, can do. I am neither. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> you have to pick a geek side. <laughs> but Monica, you know, the, the reason why I asked <laughs> Harry Potter, uh, the reason why I asked you that, that, that question was because one of the things that you describe uh, in your book is, you know, that we all have this thing called an assumption assistant. And, uh, you know, in our charged political environment today, when you hear words like inclusivity or equity or free speech or religion, you know, we immediately start to craft these assumptions. Um, And I may, and I wanted you to answer that question, what is inclusivity to you? Because that is one of those, you know, words that triggers assumptions in our Absolutely. Could you dig a little bit deeper into what that assumption assistant is and, and what you mean by that? Yeah, so assumption assistant is basically really the the bundle of uh, judgments and projections that come up when we meet somebody or we're in a new environment or what have you. You know, somebody walks up to us and based on how they look, what they're wearing, their age, where we are, all kinds of things, we'll make assumptions before we've talked to them or know anything about them. And, you know, based on the game of probability, maybe we're right. Maybe we're right more often than not. But regardless, these assumptions are always going to come. We can't stop them from coming. But what we can do is try to be aware of them. And the reason that we should be aware of them is because 
we can then, once we're aware of them, turn those assumptions into questions. You know, so I, I don't know, I could I could give examples, right, that would like surface stereotypes. So let's go, let's be candid, right? You know, somebody with a lot of piercings and tattoos who's kind of the younger end approaches, you know, an older woman who looks very put together with a big sort of Christian cross, right? And the person with tattoos is like, oh my gosh, this person, this woman is conservative. She's she's evangelical or something. And she probably hates me for this and that reason. And then the woman would look at the piercings and go, oh man, this person probably rioted and burned down businesses, you know, in his city and blah, blah, blah. And so, yeah. so, so we come together with that being whispered in our ear. And so the challenge becomes, hang on, <laughs> you know, like we would do with anything. So you can't, you can't believe that. You have to be aware of it. So it's all suspended and you you turn it into a question like, oh, I notice the cross on her chest. I wonder what her relationship with religion is. Hmm. You know, I notice the tattoos. Cool. There could be any of a number of stories there, you know, jumping to like, oh, this is the image I see on the news as a conservative of people destroying downtown or what have you. So it's 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 there's so many layers deep um, and in polarized times, they've become so condensed and so associated right that peeling each layer off takes a little work but but the more that we notice them again that the, the more we give ourselves that chance to turn our judgments into questions turn our assumptions into questions and let curiosity do its work so this is a little bit of a tangent but it's it's in our in our environment that is so driven by social media and by traditional media in which we oftentimes never meet you know, that put together woman with a cross um, or that very, um, you know, uh, pierce, piercing ridden man. Um, uh, and instead, our assumptions are entirely crafted by the media that we're consuming. How do you think that we can be hyper aware of these assumptions in an environment where oftentimes we never actually directly interact with the people that we disagree with? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What a great question. I mean, one thing is to recognize that we are spending a lot of time swimming in those media narratives uh, without checking them with reality. And, and we know that's happened. There's, there's a lot of evidence of um, a lot of sorting going on where people are moving to be closer to folks who seem more like them, which means that as in, in general, our society is getting more distant from different kinds of lifestyles that could lead to different, different viewpoints. So I think I think that's really important. A another thing that's coming to mind is, you know, Thanksgiving is coming up and more and more in American life, these types of things, holidays that bring families together across, you know, generations and whatnot and from different cities are becoming some of our only opportunities to encounter difference. And the opportunity that we do have is that, well, there there's a relationship there. There's and when you have a relationship at the at the base of difference, you have a lot more hope of being able to build that bridge, of being able to understand that other person. But you also have a lot more to lose, so you have to be careful there. Um, a lot of it, too, is, is acknowledging, you know, social media has enormous power to connect us, and it has enormous power to divide us. And it does hack into our psychology, and it does flatten us into these opinions that just go into showdowns. So how do we, it's almost like changing the ratio. Can we change the ratio how often are we having these tough discussions on platforms that flatten us and restrict our full toolbox of commu human communication versus the rest of the time? So have more in-person conversations about these issues. Even with people you think agree with you, you might be surprised. There's plenty of nuance to go around. You know, one of the things you write about a lot in your book is the role that values play in, in conversations. How, how do you think we can utilize 
the values, the deeper part, not just, you know, my stance on abortion, but why I believe yeah. that stance on abortion. How do we use values um, in these very divisive conversations and divisive times to get somewhere productive? Yeah, I think values are the key to common ground. And, and common ground is this phrase that people roll their eyes at now because it's thrown around as if it's ever just find common ground. We'll get through this if we just find common ground. It's like, yeah, easier said than done, yo. Like that stuff's tough. How do you find common ground across, you know, row weighed stuff? It's really, really hard. But I think the answer is values. So the way you get to that in conversation is by asking about concerns. And this is something I first experienced as a journalist that when you ask people what concerns them about something, and there's various versions of this question I'll get to, you are not asking a very judgmental question at all. You're actually asking a question that curiosity can do a lot with because you're gathering information. What concerns you? What else concerns you? Anything else? Anything else? You know. And as a journalist, I'm putting it all down there and I'm, I'm, I'm getting all that. And this person is getting the opportunity to you know, put on the table and set down these things that kind of animate them. So mm -hmm. behind those concerns are values. You know, Maybe the value of security, maybe the value of caring for those close to us. And, and sorry to interrupt, really, could, yeah. could you differentiate between values and concerns? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, a concern might be, gosh, um, you know, guns and school shootings, right? Uh, a concern might be, well, I'm concerned that if we arm teachers or staff at schools, that it, it's just going to get more dangerous in there, that we're just going to end up causing more harm. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, behind those concerns about well, there's 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 the value of of safety, of wanting to keep people safe, mm -hmm. but also of making sure that people have the freedom to protect themselves, the freedom to thrive, right? And self-direction. So that all shows up. Um, and someone would come in and say, well, it's the guns that are dangerous and whatnot. And so so maybe that person is leaning a little bit away from the power, giving the power to an individual to defend and protect themselves because they really are leaning towards safety and they believe that's the way. But others might say, no, that power to protect ourselves is really, really important. So let's instead make sure that guns go to trustworthy individuals, but let's not go too far because I don't want my freedoms, you know, impinged. So mm -hmm. it's freedom, it's security, it's it's caring for others, it's all kinds of things, freedom to move. Um, yeah. And so those values are the ones that we do hold in common because nobody hates freedom. Anytime you see somebody say that as a slogan, just don't believe it. It's obviously wrong. Yeah. Nobody hates being safe. <laughs> you know, yeah. nobody doesn't believe in these core values. What's different is we stack them in a different order for different issues. Right. Right. It's almost like, you know, a value might be free speech, but a concern might be speakers being invited on campus. Um, and, exactly. And the, reason, and the reason I wanted to touch on that is because oftentimes it seems like in conversations, we conflate values and concerns and we stay at that concern mm -hmm. level and then never get to the actual values. Um, yes, yes. And then we use that to say that they don't share my values. Like, exactly. no, maybe they just don't have your concern as high as you do, but uh -huh. they have another one that's even higher and a different set of values that's kind of coming up on top for them. So you'll, you'll be happy to know this, but today we were we were at uh, Ohio University in 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 Athens, Ohio, and at the end of the event, we basically went around in this group, and the question that we had everyone answer was, you know, what concerns you most, and what do you most care mm, about? And nice. fascinatingly enough, to your point, there's a lot of similarity when you just look at people's values and when mm -hmm. you look at people's concerns. And my question there would be that 
in this hyper-polarized environment where people say that there's a lot at stake in these conversations, how do you, you know, distangle the question of privilege in these conversations? Um, mm. Oftentimes people say that, well, you know, if I'm privileged, I can easily engage in these conversations because nothing's really at stake for me. But, mm-hmm. you know, this, for example, underrepresented uh, minority child has a much harder time engaging in these conversations. How do you grapple mm-hmm. with that? Yeah, I was going to say how you, what privilege means to you, because that's another word that can mean a lot and that can feel politically loaded. So when you say privilege, I'm asking the questions. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but when you say privilege, yeah, no, it's a, yeah, I think, I think with respect to uh, at least my generation and when it comes to uh, how we approach our chapters, oftentimes people say privilege in the sense of um, you're at a certain uh, point in your social location that you are uh, necessarily shielded from some problems. So people right. often throw around right. the term white privilege, this notion that if you're of a certain skin color, you're less likely to experience certain points of discrimination. And I'm just sort of steel manning the argument, but that's yeah. sort of what I mean by privilege is your social location in society and what that implies for what you can access and what you can experience. Yeah. So I, I am really grateful that that concept has come up and been so key to the way that we think you know, in new, fresh ways about how to have conversations, how to make sure that the discomfort is not too harmful and things like that. I think that's awesome. But but I think we have to be really careful not to be, not to draw those sorts of conclusions about privilege in a way that makes these sort of rigid rules about whose meaning is mm-hmm. most important. Um, I think that's that's what gets a little bit dangerous. Um, and this is a tough thing to untangle. So please, you know, guide me if I go somewhere kind of off, but I believe kind of like I was saying that curiosity has this enormous power, like a perceptive question can just cut through (laughs) the walls of things within a conversation. We can cut through a lot Yeah. within a conversation. When you get to a lot of depth, you can connect at a certain level where if you still believe yourself to be limited by the conditions of your society, you are limiting yourself Hmm. in that conversation. In that conversation, other things can actually kind of take a back seat as you explore who you are as people. And I've seen it happen. Maybe you've seen it happen where, where, yeah, if we, if we come in telling ourselves that we are, we are, we are permanently disadvantaged in this exchange or permanently advantaged in this exchange, then we may be limiting some some sense of discovery of that social condition. Um, The other thing, of course, is that I've seen a lot of certainty about privilege that I think is questionable, right? So, you know, the student of color at an elite university, um, you know, who might be talking about race and in the same room, uh, there's someone who's working for relative, relatively pennies, Mm -hmm. you know, in a rural part of this country who's white and who knows, right? There's race, there's class, there's gender, there's power, there's upbringing, there's nationality. We can get lost in this. Hmm. And I think that's it. It's like, let's not get lost in it. And so, yeah, I'm glad you're bringing this up because this is something I'm still working on. There's no final answers here. Yeah. All I know is that some really powerful things happen when we don't feel too limited by it. Um, but another thing I'll say is that it is true that power is real, right? And for those people who are shielded from certain problems, um, my hope is that they can, they can, they can compensate for that by being even more curious about the experiences they don't have. 
because the consequences are that much higher for other groups of people. But I think that's the lever to pull, right? It's like, get more curious, get more curious, not feel insignificant or that you don't matter in this conversation. I don't think that's it. And I think the notion of limiting the possibility of something that happens in a conversation, is, I think very insightful and very well put. And I think when it comes to these dialogues, you know, before we shift more to some of the challenges around this work and that second half of the conversation where we where we talk more about um, how we take this to the next step, uh, the final question I have for you in this part is, what do you think have been like the biggest critiques of of your book or of the work? What what have you found, if you were to sort of be introspectively curious about, about the literature that you've written, what have you found has been some of the most difficult stuff to contend with and 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 dealing with those arguments? Yeah, um, I think about this a lot. The barriers is is what I think of it. So one of them is reciprocity, the mm-hmm. challenge of reciprocity. People say, I'm curious, but they're not curious with me. What yeah. am I supposed to do? Right. So I can say more about that. Uh, another one is it is is the idea you want me to talk to people who deny my existence. Yeah. Right. Um, there, there, there's that red line for people, and different people put that red line in different places. But you know, because this person believe, is pro-life, they deny my existence as a woman, they deny my rights as a person. And so, man, you know, once you put that on that place, then oh my gosh, I think that's a big barrier for people. Um yeah, and there's also this 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 critique of following this kind of path with curiosity means that there's no action, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a huge misconception. That if I'm just asking questions and understanding all day, whoop-de-doo, mm-hmm. what are we solving? Oh, great. I understand my whoever, you know, the other side parents, but they're still voting that way that I think is terrible or you know, how is that going to fix these political problems that I see as sort of life and death? So it's, it goes back to the high stakes. These things are so high stakes that being curious will only harm um, harm the energy and ability to act. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think all three of these are misguided. <laughs> and I, wow. I have my responses. Well, I, actually, that, that's 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 a perfect uh, transition. I mean, it shows how perceptive you are because those those were actually going to be similar uh, versions of that that I was going to ask about the challenges to this. So, like, let's actually right. unpack the reciprocity right. point. And, and this is something I was going to ask earlier when you said, you know, we enter into a conversation. Oftentimes, I'll hear from my friends like, "I'm talking to this person, but I'm curious. They're not as curious as me. Why is that?" Um, and, and maybe there's some pride involved. Maybe they are actually curious, but just not showing up the way that you want them to be curious. How do you parse that that sort of critique of reciprocity, and especially when we feel it yeah. in our daily conversations? Right. I mean, it's beginning by, by relating to how darn frustrating that can be. It's extremely frustrating. A, a lot of times when there are these disagreements, we may come, you know, ready to be curious, ready to make it about them in hopes that it'll have good results. But at the end of the day, we're the ones that want to be heard. You know, we all want to be heard. And so when we're approaching someone across this divide who we feel is not hearing us, we only have so much fuel to hear them before we see some progress uh, in the other direction. So so that's interesting, right? Like that is totally, totally relatable. And, you know, what I, what I really take issue with is this idea that that other person is not curious. They're either not capable of it, they're not interested in it. And And one thing that I will say is this, because I think this comes up a lot. The principle at the core of this dynamic is that people can hear when they're heard. And 
I cannot control. I have no idea what it will take for you to feel heard by me. It could be a lot. And here's what makes it even harder. Let's say, you know, that it's my conservative uncle and he's surrounded by liberal media and surrounded by liberal family members. And here's this liberal niece or whatever uh, coming up and asking him questions. What's he going to feel? Is he going to be all excited to ask her questions? No, he's surrounded by this stuff. He's going to be so excited that someone's actually listening to him, that for him, it's going to be a sense of, oh my gosh, I finally have a chance. I finally have a shot. This works both ways, right? I've seen it happen both ways. So that's part of the issue. People, unfortunately, a lot of us sort of treat each other as representatives of the side rather than individuals. So that's a problem. That's not a great reaction from the uncle, but it is a very natural and normal reaction. So in other words, it will take more time. And I think there's courage and patience. And I think the most important thing to do with a bridge is not to cross it, but to keep it, to not Mm. throw in the towel just because you're not getting reciprocity. Curiosity is contagious, but people have to feel heard and people have to understand that you're an individual and they're an individual and that there's enough goodwill. And that means you have to demonstrate it sometimes over and over again to overcome the stereotypes they're aiming at you about your side. That's very well said, especially this notion that it takes courage. But if you extend that courage to let them be heard, uh, you're going to maintain that bridge at worst. And at best, you're going to be able to cross it um, yeah. and get somewhere. The The second part that you had identified was this, this notion of existence that, mm-hmm. you know, let's say you and I are talking about the status of Indian American immigrants in the United States. And mm-hmm. Let's say that I rose, raised this notion that actually like this conversation, the policy that you're advocating for, Monica, is just um, threatening the way that my family has shown up and I just cannot engage in this conversation. Right. What would you say to someone that responded in that way? And how do we interrogate that notion of existence as a reason for why we can't have that conversation? Yeah, and it's so tough, isn't it? <laughs> it's so tough. Yeah. I mean, first again, relating to it. Politics is really personal. I mean, in my lifetime, it has never felt more personal. These are not, for so many people, these are not just disagreements. It's not some intellectual exercise. It's, yeah, it's somebody saying that I cannot be who I am. And that's how it feels. And that's how it is. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's no convincing otherwise. And so, so once you get to that point, it just, it really does feel like any engagement is a servility. It's Mm -hmm. a a lack of self-respect. I'm not going to do that. I have dignity. Right. So here, here again, I think there's the possibility to complicate that with some reframes. Um, you and I both know John Rauch, who's an incredible author and thinker. And he tells a story about being part of the same-sex, uh, the, the fight for same-sex marriage. And the last thing that allies of that movement wanted to do was go and talk to folks who had the kinds of ideas that basically resulted in thinking something is very wrong with people who are gay, Right. But they went and talked to them anyway, (laughs) a lot of courage there. And what they heard among the things they heard was, oh, a lot of these folks have children or loved ones who are gay. Mm -hmm. And so what they realized was that the, the question that began to change minds was, don't you want this person you love to be happily married? Wouldn't you want that joy for them? And so there, it was like leaning into that tension, which exists for so many people between who they love and what they believe until the love kind of wins, you know? And so they couldn't have learned that, that that was a persuasive technique for that particular cause without without listening extraordinarily empathetically. 
Hmm. Um, and, and so that's the other thing. Like, if you think that you're too activist for this, let me turn that around for you. You're too activist not to do this. You have to do this. You have to enrich your understanding. The world is giving you a lot of ghosts and monsters that aren't there. You need to understand what's really going on and how these are real people and how they're truly motivated so that if you have the better idea and the better persuasive case, you can make it. Now, it may not be you, and I'm not saying that you, 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 no, 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 no. Everyone has their own individual calculation of whether they can get into this, but Goodness, I hope for all of our sakes that there are enough of us who are able to do this because stepping away doesn't create the change we think it will. There's this interesting quote in your book that um, we noted down that I want to read to you. And I'm just curious how you relate to this. Um, You say that people are harder to move from our positions on things that matter to us for good reason because our whole lives have led us here. And this goes to this notion, again, that these conversations oftentimes are very high stakes. How do we... And maybe we don't, but what is your recommendation on how we can try to, you know, unwrap our personal from a policy or a conversation? Yeah, like, yeah. And is, is that the right, should we be doing that? Well, that's the thing, right? Because it's funny. You want to unwrap in some way the personal from the policy so that you can engage in the conversation because yeah. you're going to be so scared. You're going you're gonna to feel under threat, Right. But once you're in the conversation, the opportunity is, you know, the the thing you believe in strongly, your whole life backs it up. If you want to, really the best scenario is to be seen, is for that path to be seen, is for you to have the opportunity to say, let me walk you through my life, sir. Let me share with you some moments, right, where I've I've in, in confronted struggle, where it's been painful, Because when we share those stories with each other, and there's been research to back this up too, stories about our struggles around our own morality or what we believe are far more compelling and persuasive and resonate better than just abstractly declaring our position on something. So so that's the opportunity. You don't want to lose the personal from the policy at all once you're in the conversation. Once you're in the conversation, you want to bring that personal experience in because that's what's going to help everybody else see themselves in you. And go, oh, I never thought of it that way. Interesting, right? But that takes getting to that point. And that's where sometimes, you know, we see things so personally that we, again, feel that we are going to harm ourselves by even engaging, even associating, letting the, the monster out of the box or whatever it is. But, but, I, but again, I would reframe it that I think the greater harm is caused by too few of us letting ourselves be seen and expecting the world to change. So do you ever get strongly triggered and slip from curiosity to defensiveness? And how do you reconcile and deal with that? <sighs> yeah, gosh. This is a tough question for me to answer. One, one because I've spent so many years as a journalist having conversations of understanding without judgment that my mm-hmm. judgment doesn't often, like it's always kind of in the background, right? And I, it's, And that's fine. I think honestly, because the one thing I'm an activist about is this work. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. where I get defensive is the people who who, who come up work. and yeah. yeah and just say this is this is nothing and and so I get defensive but then I go wait the way that I get better at this work and that I add friction to it and and if it if it's going to be good then I make sure that it is good is to listen a hundred thousand percent to this person so yeah. I have 
you know, that email comes in, I go, Hey, can we talk? And then we talk because I want to understand. So yeah, but I do want to get defensive. I absolutely want to get defensive. Uh, Just the other day, someone left a review of the book saying, you know, I think it's because Monica wrote this before the, the reversal of Roe v. Wade, but you know, now that it's reversed, like this book is terrible because it's asking us to be curious about people who would deny our humanity, things like that. And it's just, you know, and like, but there's so much I want to say to that person, but that's not the way to begin. The way to begin is not to say anything to that person. It's to listen to that person and get in that person's shoes because there's a lot of pain there and a lot of frustration. And, and yeah. And when I sit in that space, I'm like, yeah, I get it. I get it. Do you think journalism can play a role in helping foster a fertile soil of curiosity and courageous conversations? And and importantly, like, what do you think would incentivize journalists to uh, be more curious? Yeah, I mean, 100%. If anything, if there is an institution where curiosity should reign, it's journalism. And, Mm -hmm. And it does. I mean, for all of the faults of our media landscape and all of its fractures and all of its blind spots, uh, it's also remarkable right? What reporting is able to reveal in this country. And this is again, where like, go to some other countries and see how it's going over there. Like we should be grateful every Mm. day that we have journalists Mm. trying to dig in, but there are a lot of blind spots right now. So what, what I, what I think the real opportunity is for journalists to lead us in curiosity, to model better than anyone else, intellectual humility, to go out of their way to make sure that opinions are being put into constructive conversation with each other in their stories, in their spaces. They have an enormous opportunity to do that. Um, you know, and I know wonderful journalists who are working on this exact problem right now. I mean, I'll shout out Jennifer Brandel of Harkin, Joy Mayer of the Trusting News Project, uh, and there's many, many more. So more attention is being turned to this. What would help them the most is the thing that feels most impossible, which is an economic model that supports it. Right now, there's just nothing cheaper. There's no cheaper way to get with what media needs than social media. Make it emotional, make it make it outragey, make it something that people identify with and that strengthens their identification so that they share it, so that we, that media outlet, can survive in this mm-hmm. cutthroat environment where otherwise we can't pay our reporters and everybody loses a job. So it's like that, that piece is gah, tragic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's still true, actually, that the reporting that is most informed by curiosity and is most resonant and connected to its community is the most successful. It is the most successful. Maybe not on the national scale, but on the national scale, there's not a lot of impact anyway. It's it's the local journalism that that has the edge here. You've got a lot for us, Monica. Um, I Instead of asking my last question, being selfish and continuing to feed my curiosity, I, right. I, I want to turn the floor over to you uh, before we close out. Yeah. Okay. I'll mention that thing. Actually, it did not come up. Uh, It's about emotional labor. It's about how exhausting and laborious uh, this work is, which depending on who you are and what the relationship is and how much, you know, that political disagreement is actually about you, (laughs) you know, then these conversations could be impossible or they could be possible or they could be very easy. Who knows? You're anywhere on that spectrum. But, but here's the thing about emotional labor. Uh, When people say there's too much emotional labor in having this conversation, here, here's the, here's how I might, here's what I might offer is that I think that we often assume that right now, when we are not having a conversation like this, our emotional labor is zero. And then when we have the conversation, it'll, it's 10, it's 20, it's 50, it's a hundred. But I don't think it's true that your emotional labor is zero. Mm. 
You know, I think we're looking around and we're seeing how stressed out we are. We're seeing the volume be up really high. A lot of people are walking around this world like it's on fire. Is it on fire? I don't know. Or is it just warm? (laughs) And we know from the research that, again, people look across the divide and vastly exaggerate. We all do. So is there room for some possibility that maybe the anxiety that we feel every day, fearing the people who disagree with us, is a lot of emotional labor every day. And that actually having these conversations will start to shave off that labor so that the first conversation's a little tough, but you know, you didn't go talk to a Nazi, you talk to somebody who just disagrees with you a little bit. You make these short bridges, right? And maybe it's the opposite. Maybe through these conversations, you actually are reducing your daily emotional labor. That's not gonna be true for everybody, but I think that's a complicating thing that we have to consider. Well, Monica, thank you so, so much for all you do. It's it's both an inspiration uh, and a humbling experience to, to be doing this work alongside you. Thank you for the value that you're bringing to the world, especially at this highly divided moment. I think that we live in a democracy that is defined and built by people. And if we, the people, don't act and engage in these conversations, then we don't have anything. We don't have a democracy. We can't talk to each other. Thank you. Thank you, Manu. This was This was awesome. This was great. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate you. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Check out Florida Humanities online at floridahumanities.org. We appreciate you listening to I Never Thought of It That Way with Monica Guzman. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thanks so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Cast.